What's going on, guys and gals? My name is Chris Tondevold, and this is Ambition Radio. This is a podcast where we try to find people that have found that balance between their life, family, career, and the pursuit of their passions, dreams, or hobbies. This week, we have musician Wes Rice. Wes has been a big force in the Southern Maryland music scene for years, starting off mostly in cover bands like No Green Jelly Beans, and now his own solo act, mixing covers and originals. This is only part one of a two-part episode. We started talking, and an hour and 40 minutes later, I realized, A, that we have been talking for a super long time, and two, we have so much more to cover. In part one, we talk about how he got into music, his crazy time with Say What Karaoke on MTV, the sacrifices you make to pursue music as a career, way too much about Green Day, and reprioritizing your life to focus on family while still balancing that urge to play music. Part two will come out next week. Just a quick side note on this episode, we recorded this with uh, Skype. So there's going to be a little bit of digital stuff here and there that sounds a little wonky. I did my best to get rid of it, but there is still some there. So sorry ahead of time, but still a really, really good episode. So hopefully you enjoy. As always, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Follow me on Spotify and subscribe on Google Play or however you get your podcast. Thank you for everything. Here's the show. Enjoy. First, how are you doing with all the, the quarantine stuff? I saw that you and your daughter were doing your own little Facebook Live concerts, and now you kind of stopped that for the second, right? Yeah, it's it was easy at first. It was just kind of, yeah, jump on, jam. It's all good. Then we did the Beatles one, and then she did one by herself. The couple I've done by myself, like I kind of hop on and just treat it like it's a, a normal acoustic gig. Right. And I end up getting a lot of the same requests over and over, which I'm cool with singing those songs, but it's not an attraction if I'm doing the same songs every time. Right. It's the same same thing over and over and over again, right? Yeah. You know, if you when you're out at the bar and you know, you're hanging out with your friends and I'm in the background or you know, you're singing along here or there, but there's other things also keeping your interest, it's different. Nobody wants to just hear me get on every week and sing 10 songs every week so her and i we're we're sorting out some things we're gonna kind of put together some themed planned ones together that would be cool like the 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 beatles one i think that i think that was really cool i would guess the other thing for you too is that it's a lot different to play just to a camera than it is to an actual crowded room right oh my gosh yeah the song itself is not the difficult part it's the in-between you finish the song and normally there's something Right. You know, it's clapping or yelling or even if nobody pays attention, nobody cares. There's noise in the room. Yeah, because you're not getting any feedback. (laughs) The first one we did, my wife was kind of in the corner of the room and she was following along with comments. So she was she was sort of that that response. We'd finish the song. She would start talking about who commented during the song or start talking about the next request or whatever. But yeah, the rest of them, especially when I've been by myself. It's super awkward because I'm trying to read comments as they're happening while I'm playing, but then I get to the end of the song and then I'm trying to talk to those comments and some of those were three minutes ago. And <laughs> Yeah, that's that's really hard. So I uh, there's a couple things that I've been seeing. One is that comedians are trying to do stand-up shows in front of a camera, which I feel is one of the hardest things that you could do because you don't get that immediate reaction, right? So you also don't, get the fact that you could be bombing your your jokes could be bombing because you don't know (laughs) and then 
timing and and room feel I feel like is is very important. I assume it's the same thing with playing music live to a crowd is that you want to get the energy, right? You want to get the feel for it and see what they're doing. You want you want that reaction. You know, we we see people that put in years and years of, of work and all this technical lighting and technical show stuff just to brand themselves a little bit different from other cover bands that are there to kind of make the whole atmosphere better. So I couldn't imagine playing in front of a camera or trying to do stand-up in front of a camera. I also, uh, what I noticed is one of my favorite people um, playing music is Kevin Devine. And he did like a little Facebook live or an Instagram live and trying to keep up with those comments and like the little messages of, hi, how are you? It's so difficult while you're trying in the middle of it. Yeah. There's been a couple where, you know, some of my other friends were doing stuff and, and I'll jump on and I'm thinking to myself, well, let me be busy in the comments for that purpose to kind of, you know, give them something to react to. And, and I end up, you know, it's friends of mine. So I'm, I'm joking as if we were actually sitting side by side. And then before you know it, they're trying to play a song or something and they start laughing because <laughs> of something I said. And I'm like, oh, whoops. <laughs> Sorry, dude. Yeah, you're trying to you're trying to be the hype man and like the middleman between the the audience and them. And that's <laughs> that's funny. That I think that's gonna be interesting. I don't know. Obviously, we have no idea kind of like how long this is going to be, but I think that's a, a good way to at least yeah. keep the the engagement in there. As as far as you playing live and all that stuff, you know, you haven't been able to. So is that something that you're thinking about different ways to keep engaging people to keep coming back to you? Yes and no. I mean, I'm not trying to overthink it. I did an Eric Church night. Of course, Eric Church got a gazillion fans right now. So that's an easy one. Yeah. That's kind of where I got to go from here. Is it it kind of has to be themed in a sense. Even maybe like the whole song list isn't planned out, but you know, I got to narrow it down to all right, we're going to do a 90s night. I may even have to break it down to all right, tonight is 90s country, tonight is 90s pop. I like that. That way you don't have to repeat the same tunes yeah. every single time and you get a little bit of different look at it, right? And it, it it's also going to force me to kind of like either learn some songs or yeah, refresh some songs. Like, yeah, who I don't have a clue how many songs I could sort of pull off. Yeah, because it's also going to be just you and a guitar basically, right? Yeah. Yeah, you're not going to have your full backing band, so that's going to be a lot different too, I'm sure. For the past couple of weeks, I'm like, well, should I do a a beans one and just like pull songs from the bean set list. I probably will end up doing one at some point if I probably should have planned it and done it Friday. This Friday was supposed to be a reunion gig. We we're going to play Tiki opening. Right, right. And uh, of course, that's not happening now. So I probably should have planned that, but I don't know. I also feel weird. Like, you know, when I do songs by myself, if they're my songs or if they're just random whatever songs, okay, fine. But I feel like the stuff that we did especially the mashups and things that we did. Me trying to pull it off by myself is not going to be cool. Yeah, you're going to have to restructure the entire song just to fit what you're doing because you can't do that much with just the guitar. Right. You know, you want to, because you're going to want to have to get like drums in there, maybe a little bit of bass in there to kind of, and another guitar at that point. Yeah. That's why I thought it was kind of cool that you and your daughter were doing it because you can do a little bit more stuff to it. You know, your your repertoire is a little bit bigger at that point. Right? Oh, yeah. And her, when we do them, I mean, I try to let her, I really want her to be the 
the thing. That's why both every time that we've done it together, I'm kind of like in the back. And if I could just sit there and play drums, like I'd be so good with that. <laughs> well, that's how you started, right? Yeah. You you were drumming for No Green and some other ones too, right? I started playing drums when I was 13. And okay. uh, so then through high school and college, I had a couple of original bands. I ended up moving back here to join my cousin's original band. And then that kind of fell apart after like a year. And uh, my uncle, he was, he's like, hey, I got some friends of mine. They, they got this cover band. They need a drummer. And the dudes, they ended up, they lived right across the street from me. Like, oh, well, that works out. Yeah. Yeah. That I had never met him before and literally could throw a baseball at this dude's house. <laughs> so went over there and that worked out. That ended up being the first cover band that I was in. That was uh, okay. called Bad, Bad Horse. That was uh, 2005. Okay. I think I, I think I was January of 05 to January of 07. Okay, cool. So that was a little two year run. Yeah. Yeah. And I was, I was playing drums. And uh, I don't remember what song I ended up singing while I was playing. I think it was Simple Man, actually. I feel like that's a pretty difficult one to sing and drum at the same time. So I am a huge Leonard Skinner fan. Like me at, at 16 years old, like you asked me what my favorite band was, Skinner. <laughs> and, which is, is weird because when Dookie came out, like okay. I was a thousand percent in on green day like i listened to dookie every day probably for three years that's funny then insomniac came out and i would still i'd listen to dookie every day and insomniac and then nimrod and once they got to uh what was that warning yeah yeah warning it like half of that cd was cool is that the one that uh everybody played at their graduations i feel like the time of your life i think that was on that was on nimrod nimrod okay yeah and then Warning was right after that, and that's when they kind of fell out. I mean, Dookie and Nimrod are, are just, Dookie especially, are just such a good album all the way through. Yeah. There's, there's not like a, a miss on that whatsoever. And then that was when they were actually still a little punk, and now it's yeah. a whole opera and like Broadway musical <laughs> that they do, which is, what's what I think is funny about that is Billy Joe has dressed more of as a teenager later in life than he did when he was playing actual punk earlier because yeah. now you look at it it's the spiky hair it's the the eyeliner it's it's everything and uh he looks like he dresses like a, a 16 year old little emo punk but he is definitely not yeah because when when he actually was punk his hair was whatever color right whatever he attempted to dye it <laughs> but it cost him like five dollars because he was actually poor yeah, yeah. So it it didn't actually come out a real color. You know, it was just whatever clothes he found at the thrift store. Right. And that was way cooler than whatever he's trying to do now. Yeah, it's a <laughs> lot more genuine. You feel that the authenticity is actually there. It's not, you know, just this kind of like fake. I don't know. Like, I like Green Day well enough. Dookie is is just a seminal album, and you know, growing up and listening to DC One Hundred One, that you can't not know who they are. Oh yeah, because oh. they're they're on the station all the time. Um, but it it is a very I th I think they're one of the only ones if you look at just like their fashion that has kind of gone backwards. Like most of the time, you look at Aerosmith, where it's just Steven Tyler with all the scarves. <laughs> like he just he just looks like your your grandma, like your hippie grandma, just with everything in there. You know, it's it's I think it's 
weird, but you know they're they're still doing what they want to do. He's he's doing ridiculous stuff. The the Broadway musical is something that I never thought a punk band would do. He and Nora Jones did an album together. It's just called Billy Joe and Nora. Really? And uh, the entire album is a cover of an Everly Brothers entire album, front to back, same order, the whole deal. And it was when he was growing up, his mom played that album nonstop. And so he was, he was, became a huge fan of it. Uh, he was kind of forced into it, but he grew to love it. And then he grew up and realized like where the songs came from. Yeah. You know, when, when you're young, like you learn the words, you have no clue what they're talking about. Right. And you grow up and you're like, Oh, this, this song's heavy. Yeah. It hits a different way. Yeah. Yeah. And so somehow, I don't know, Nora Jones obviously had to be a fan of it also. And somehow he reached out to her, but that album, that's one of the, the best things he's ever been a part of. And was got, was so little known even now. It's so, yeah, I had no idea. I I actually yeah. want to listen to that because I, I feel like that would go pretty well together. Oh my god, it's great. Huh. And it's it's very much acoustic guitar and piano based, obviously, but it's awesome. I think it came out probably probably five or six years ago. That's fantastic. Okay. So when you're sixteen, you're you're the Skinnerd fan and now you're starting to sing and drum at the same time for with trying to do Simple Man while also drumming the entire way through, which is... I, I always find the drummers that can do... You know, they, they're always doing two things at once, at least, right? But the <laughs> ones that can actually, like, throw in vocals is just insane to me. I don't... There's so much going on. I can't even do just, like, a rather regular rhythm. I can barely <laughs> do that. Like, that's, that's just... It's nuts. There was uh, one guy that I've seen, um, Brandon Nicholson. He's he's from St. Mary's. Um, he used to play where he would drum and then throw a guitar in there, keep the beat going, play like a little riff on his guitar, keep going back, and then sing after that too. And it was just nuts. I, I never understood how anybody does that. And it just made <laughs> me feel less of a human all the way through. Yeah. There's a, uh, there's a handful of those guys out there on YouTube now just doing it, man. Like, kid is set up. Guitar in the lap, mic over there, and they're just like nonstop. Everything's flying. And if you close your eyes, you would have no clue that one dude was pulling all this off. Yeah, all at the same time. Yeah. You can you can get away with them just like tracking everything. That's fine. That that's cool. Like I you uh, you know, you think that would happen, yeah. but not all at the same time. That just <laughs> all right, cool. Yeah. So you were drumming and then started singing. So that's, is that when you started doing more vocals at that point then? Uh, so randomly, I didn't, I didn't know anything about this band or why they needed a drummer. My uncle said, hey, my friends need a drummer. I showed up. We started jamming. It just kind of moved forward. There, was, there wasn't very much discussion of what happened. We were at, uh, beside Birchmart in Mechanicsville, there's a liquor store. A and, a and B liquor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. So that used to be called Hills Hills Club. Okay. And then it turned into Club 911. So but that's where we were playing. We played the first set, and this guy comes over. He's like, hey, man, I'm a drummer, too. Would you mind if I sit in on a song? At the time, I'm brand new to this cover band game. So it's like not a big deal to me. I'm like, right. yeah, dude, I don't care. I don't care. Now, people have done that to me in the past, like, eight, ten years. Yeah. Like. 
are you fucking high? That is such like, a ballsy uh, move. Like you have yeah. to just go in there and be like, yeah, I can play this. I'm just move. <laughs> You're getting paid hundreds of thousands of dollars, but just just move over. It. I got it. Don't worry about it. So this, I tell this, I'm like, I look at the set list. I'm like, you know, shook me all night long because I got to sing that. You want to play that? He's like, yeah, no problem. So this guy ends up playing like three songs that night, nice. all songs that, that I had to sing. And I'm like, this is great. <laughs> Come to find out at the end of the night after he left, that's the drummer that they fired. <laughs> <laughs> and somehow none of them told me. That's like, so during, funny. That's so funny. Yeah. Nobody said anything during the show. So he started just coming out like he'd come out for a couple gigs in a row and then disappear for a little bit, come back. And to, probably after like a year, he had come out enough. And I guess whatever beef they had, they had sorted it out. And we went to a five piece. He ended up joining the band. That's crazy. <laughs> and I would play some songs on drums. And then other times I would just be singing and it was all over the place. Like then, then there was times where I wasn't even on stage. I wasn't doing anything. Like it, they were a four piece, and it was it was wild. But that's so funny. It was that whole song list was very seventies uh, and eighties based. Okay, which I got very tired of at the time. I wanted to be more current. Fall Out Boy put out Sugar, We're Going Down. Oh yeah, yeah. We started covering that. It was huge. Like there was there were sometimes we'd have to play it twice a night. Because it was just the biggest thing. But they didn't want to transition more in that direction. They wanted to stay. And now these guys were all older than me, too. That's what I was about to say. Yeah, they're probably like 15 years older. Yep. The whole set list was uh, Bon Jovi, Guns N' Roses, ACDC, Van Halen, Aerosmith, and Boston. Those seven bands filled up an entire night of music with like a handful of other songs dropped in. That's so silly because you you think about that stuff and then you also forget that they had like legit bangers every single one of them like multiple <laughs> multiple so you just see like yeah that's that's funny but that is definitely the like a a specific generation for you like a specific demographic oh, yeah. that you're going for I think that's interesting that you're trying to be like nah let's let's do this other stuff like what you're 22 uh I was 24 24 okay yeah, so all of your friends that are going to see you, they're just watching the same songs that their parents grew up on that they've listened to for the past 20 years and they don't want to listen to it anymore. Exactly. And and at that time like a lot of my friends were still in college okay. or just getting just getting out of college. All the friends I had made in the original band that I was in before I got into that cover band, they were all younger than me. Gotcha. Okay. So I was I was the oldest guy in that original band in 2004. So all of them were younger than me. So they either couldn't even go to the bar yet. Right. If they did go to the bar, they didn't want to hear Bon Jovi. It was, you know, the used and newfound and story of the year. Like nobody wanted to hear Bon Jovi. No, no. You wanted to cry a little bit and just have a little bit more eyeliner and <laughs> have your girlfriend break your heart again or something. I, I don't know. That's funny. So I was like, eh, I'm. I got I got things I want to do and this this ain't cutting it. I guess about six months later that I started the beans. Nice. I saw another band one time at Big Dog's Paradise, and they were doing a good chunk of the stuff I wanted to do. I could tell by what they were doing, I'm like, well, yeah, they could definitely handle the rest of what I want to do. And that band, they fell apart like right after that time I saw them. 
wow. So I reached out and I grabbed the, the lead guitar player and, and the singer from that band. And then I had a different bassist, but within a couple months and I had the bass player from that band. Then we got it up and rolling. Was the the name from like a, a writer, like that that idea of, hey, I can't have green M&Ms in this bowl? Yep. So I was in Nashville with uh, with a guy in 2006 and it was very much that. We walked in and the dressing room had food everywhere. And I just made that joke like, oh, I told him no green jelly beans. I'm not playing. <laughs> somehow that came up like when I started the band. And I'm like, it doesn't make any sense, but it rhymes and cool. Yeah, no, it, it works. I mean, it's it's that kind of like that mythos of a, a full rock and roll band that are just like yeah. this much of a diva that are just like, I need just green jelly beans. This is all I need. So, do you know the actual story? No. So the actual story of that was Van Halen, and it was brown M&Ms. Okay. They wanted a bowl of M&Ms with no brown ones. And if they came in and they saw the bowl with no brown M&Ms, they could trust that somebody had read the entire rider. Right. Everything was good. If there was no M&Ms or if there was brown ones, they could question it, and then they could go back and say, well... Did you read that the stage needs this, this, and this? And supposedly, these brown M&Ms led them to end up canceling gigs because once the M&Ms were wrong, then they dug deeper into the, yeah. the specs of the contract and realized not everything was in line. That's nuts. It's it's something that you just do with experience, right? So if you can't get this one thing right, then how am I going to be able to bring in thousands and thousands of people and do my job? Exactly. That's insane. Yep. That it's it's that little minutia of a detail, but it could definitely throw the whole thing off the rails. Say if it's a cable or a light, or now I don't have these three guitars that aren't working, so my whole the whole music's done. And it, it's really a genius thing for whoever thought about. Yeah, let's put this in there. This will be this will be an obvious strobe light. Yeah, as to if something may be wrong. And it's not something that you think about. You just always assume that it, oh, that's just a ridiculous ask I'm, I'm not doing that yeah. i don't care that much about it and then you just lose out on they're gonna get paid they have a guarantee that it's going to work out for them it's they have right. a contract <laughs> uh just because you couldn't do it on your end doesn't mean that i can't do it on my end yeah that's uh that's interesting right. okay so with the the nashville trip was that were you like a roadie with someone or were you uh so there was a guy from waldorf named austin cody okay and austin he had a whole album of original stuff. And he was he was young at the time. I was 25. I think Austin was 22. Okay. You know, giving it a shot. Like his, his parents, they put money into getting this album done. And he had a producer and his producer had these connections. And so he got a gig at the, uh, not the, the Grand Ole Opry itself, but at the Opry Palace right outside. Like, gotcha. Okay. The same connecting type of venue. And... So I was playing rhythm guitar and singing harmonies for him. Okay. I remember his name. I, I'm trying to remember. Was he skinnier? Like a skinnier? Yeah. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. Okay. So he went off to Nashville. Did he just stay there? He did end up moving down there for a little while. Okay. But things didn't work out. Things just didn't fall into place. The producer that they, they kind of put all their eggs in this guy's basket and found out that he was pretty much full of shit and screwed. Oh, that's, that's got to feel good. Yeah. Yeah, that 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 can't be that can't be a good thing. The funny thing about Nashville is that everybody can do something, right? The other side of that is that if someone sounds good, 
there's probably like 10 more people that can do the same thing. But or he may not even be able to do the same thing that he's talking about. He's just like, I'm in Nashville. Just come see me. Yeah. Whatever you can do. Not only is there 10 more people that can do it. There's 10 more people in the bar that you're in that can do it. Right. Right. Yeah. And there's a thousand more bars. So especially right now in country music, it's so not based on talent specific. Right. The whole key is for them. They want to do as little work as possible. Luke Combs kind of blew up on Vine. The The meat of his starting package was already made from Vine by the time somebody decided, well, let's put some money here. Right. That's how all of it is. Kane Brown, the same thing. Like he had those couple of Facebook videos that went viral. Boom. There it is. Like there's, there's the meat of your story. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. You don't really go to like the bars to pick up the A&R type stuff. You're looking for, who's that next hit online that we can cultivate and kind of make into our image a little bit more. Yep. And of course, like everybody has to be willing to play whatever game the label and the producers want to create. Right. I think Luke Combs is a perfect example of that. The first song he put out, Hurricane, has the electronic drums in it and that standard like bro country sound. Yeah. Now, that kind of kicked him off. They kind of transitioned into a few other sounds on that album now the new album comes out and you can tell the new album is the sound that luke combs wants to be right right he just just had to play their game to get himself there yeah make it make a hit get some money behind you and then now you can actually go do you do a a record for the label and then you do a record for yourself and i I think that's kind of how you're supposed to balance it out or something like that yeah and some guys got to do two or three for the label before they get to do one for themselves that's that's rough. I don't I don't want to do that. I, I just want to have uh, my guitar just like sound terrible in the basement and just be good with that. You know, hopefully I can get my pinky to work and then trying to get into different spots with that. Like that's trying to learn learn guitar. Uh, I've been doing that for like a year and a half, almost two years, and I've I've gotten the power chords, and uh, I can I can do open chords, and that's that's about it. That's, <laughs> That's kind of that's kind of where I'm at. I don't know. I don't understand. Like I, I keep seeing people do all these like crazy uh, scales and and just do the like the riffs and the and the leads. And I'm just like, your fingers aren't supposed to move like that. Like your your hands supposed to be like way more flexible or like way more stiff than what you're doing because you look like a spider going all up and down. I don't get it. It's weird. It's not natural. I saw Dave Matthews in the TRL studio when he put out the Grave Digger album. Okay. And there was there was only 40 of us in the room. So being like 12, 15 feet away from him and just watching him sit on a stool and play all of his songs acoustically, that's the most mind-blown I've been at watching a guitar player. That dude can stretch like nine frets. That's insane because he doesn't <laughs> look like it either. He looks like he just does rhythm, just chills out because he's got... 12 other people on the stage and it's fine yeah and then you remember that he actually writes all the music for it and i left there like i'll never even attempt to cover a dave matthews song (laughs) it it just won't happen (laughs) if you're doing that with trl that must have been years and years ago it's the spring of 2003 okay how did you even get in there I, i went to salisbury university okay and then i worked at the quality in on the boardwalk on the weekends and uh so it was 
one Friday night. It was like, it's probably midnight or late. I worked from 8 p.m. to 4 a.m. That's a rough shift. Yeah, just overnight at the front desk. Like you might see five people. Yeah, yeah. You know, at 2.30 or 3 o'clock, you'd see like a crew roll in that had just been out, but that was it. Right. So I'm just like on the MTV website, just bouncing around, watching different things. Saw a thing about karaoke. So I sent in an audition to say what karaoke. I ended up driving to New York City the following morning. I left at 5 a.m. Wow. I got up there at like 9.30, stood in line for a couple hours, went in, auditioned for Say What Karaoke, ended up getting on the show. No shit. And the dude calls me. He's like, hey, which is so crazy now because uh, like knowing what I sounded like then, (laughs) I should not have been singing (laughs) at all. And uh, I went in, I, I sang My Friends Over You was my audition. Okay. So the guy calls me. He's like, hey, yeah, we want you to, to come be on the show. This is how it all works. Like We'll have five contestants on Monday and then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And then on Friday, the winner from each show, then they all go against each other on Friday to have one winner for the whole week. Wow. Then at the end of eight weeks, then we have the final showdown you know, with the eight winners from each week. And on the Friday show, we're going to have like a full band. And it's going to be a live recording. We're going to have dancers, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, you're going to have a band? Like, I don't, I don't care about singing, dude. I just want to be the drummer. <laughs> <laughs> and the guy. <laughs> and he's like, uh, uh, well, um, I, I mean, well, we, we picked you to be a contestant. I'm sorry. <laughs> So I go, I end up, I'm on the very first episode of the season. That's fantastic. And they ended up, they couldn't get the rights to use My Friends Over You. Okay. So I had to sing the anthem by Good Charlotte. Oh, wow. Which is hilarious because they didn't even like put it together. Like, oh yeah, well, Good Charlotte grew up 20 minutes from me. Yeah. Yeah. That's so funny. That's so funny. On top of that, like I was friends with the original drummer from Good Charlotte. So when he left, I kind of turned my back on them like, oh, well. Those guys are kidding. <laughs> so then I had to sing that song. And uh, I ended up making it to the final round. That's hilarious. That's wow. The guy I was going against, Greg, uh, Greg something. He did Sean Paul. I don't remember which one it was, but it was whichever one was a big deal at the time. And this dude nailed it. Like he sounded exactly like Sean Paul. Really? So he won the episode that I was on. And so as I'm walking off the stage, the executive producer comes over and she's like, all right, well, I'll see you Friday. I'm like, Summer, I just, Greg won. I lost. And she was like, well, yeah, but James told me you're the drummer. On our- <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yes. So, so that was the rest of my, my summer. I was playing drums on Fridays for Say What Karaoke. That's amazing. Yeah. Holy shit. Oh, man, you just lucked right into that, didn't you? Yeah. And so I lost to Greg. And then on Friday, Greg ended up losing. And then like his time was done. Sure. But the the guy who ended up winning the entire season, his name is uh, Moses, um, Moses Stone, and is still an artist now. That's amazing. Moses was 16 at the time we did the show. He ended up being on The Voice. He was on Team Christina for a little while. He's uh He's done all kinds of things. Like He's still... We're still friends. He's still doing it, like pumping out jam. 
That's fantastic. Yeah, super cool. That is a hell of a story, man. Like that that's just a, a back way to like instead of your 15 minutes of fame that uh Sean Paul, whatever, Gar- Greg, yeah, uh got you were able to go through the whole thing. Like that's that's amazing. Oh my gosh, yeah. One of the coolest feelings I ever had in my entire life was uh I would drive up Wednesday night or Thursday morning. Uh-huh. We'd have rehearsal, then we'd have another rehearsal Friday morning. We'd film Friday, and then I'd either drive home Friday night or Saturday morning. And when I was there, they would put me in the double tree across the street from TRL Studios. So I'm I'm in the double tree, and I look out my window, and every light in the TRL studio is off except for one light, which is right over top of my drum kit in the studio. <laughs> and if I mean, this is 2003, so, you know, unless I had a disposable camera, like, right. there's no way to get that. But that's, like, one image that'll be in my head forever. That's amazing. So, did they didn't even have a full band, or did they just, like, hey, the, the drummer that we had, we're just letting them go? I still don't know how I got this gig. It's It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> they They did. They hired a band from New York City. And it was all, like, dudes my age. And it was a full jazz band. Like everybody in this band was a hundred percent better at me and everything. Right. They went to to music school. They did everything. Yeah. They're just doing all yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. And even so they and that band had a drummer. <laughs> Wait, and they, they would just let like on Thursday or when yeah, on Thursday, they would know who the winners mm-hmm. from the previous four days were. So James would just be like, All right, well. These are the songs that are going to be played on the Friday live show. Which ones you want? And like, I'd, p- I'd play two or three. And then if there was one I didn't want to do, I'd just like, yeah, Elliot can play that. <laughs> you little diva. That's, that's <laughs> fantastic. I, I can just imagine this dude whiplashing all the way around like the movie. And then you're just like, nah, fuck it. I'm, I'm going to just take over. It's cool. Like, I, not only can I sing and like I got second into whatever, I'm just going to take your job too. Like, that's, yeah, we were talking about ballsy people before. That's some ballsy stuff. That's, that's what that is. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, looking back at it now, it did. All of those guys had to be like, what is the deal with it? Because <laughs> being on the show and like all the rehearsals and everything that we did before we taped the first show, I became friends with all the producers, the dancers, right, everybody. And so even when I was doing that part with the band, it was still like, go sit in, play my song, and then I was gone. And those, yeah. those guys were like, kind of like in their own little corner. And then I'm off just doing whatever with <laughs> with my friends. And yeah, I mean, it helps if you're a nice guy, right? Like, and just being able to talk to everybody else because uh, you you made legit connections. And now you got to le- really do just what you wanted, which was to play drums on national TV. Yeah. And that, wow. Okay. <laughs> I'm, and I'm, I'm still friends with a, a handful of those people from from that season of the show we went to la huntington beach uh la jolla beach for a couple weeks and uh then came back to there was supposed to be another season of the show in the fall okay like our show wrapped up in august and there was supposed to be another one coming back in late september so i moved to, to new york and then we went out to california for a little while came back to new york 
everybody kind of slummed around waiting right. for the show to kick off and it never happened. At which point I ended up having to move back to Salisbury. I also, all I had, I was going to be a teacher. Okay. All I had left to do was student teach. You could only student teach in the fall. <laughs> so I ended up, I go to MTV and then go to New York and California. By the time I moved back, it's too late to start student teaching. Yeah. Yeah. So now, now I can't student teach until the next fall. That's funny. So I end up moving back here to play drums for my cousin's band. And then I started working for my uncle and I was planning, well, I'll do that until I have to go back and student teach. By the time I would have gone back to student teach, I was already making more money than everybody that I knew that was teaching. Right. So I'm like, well, screw this. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's... <laughs> oh, that's, that's fantastic. Yeah. I don't even really like care to hear about anything else i just want to hear more about new york like that that's got to be a little bit of a bummer to just like be on have that whole show like that whole time and just like well i guess i'm gonna go play covers at, in my hometown now like that's that's cool i guess <laughs> like i was on tv what do, what are you fuckers doing like that's oh man that that's so funny so every everybody everybody there and everybody that i met in new york like everybody was one big group of friends and then everybody had their smaller groups inside of that. Of course. So the two guys that I got to be real tight with, Lamar and Justin, they were just constantly taking care of each other. Okay. Justin didn't have a job. Lamar got a gig as one of Christina Milian's background dancers. Went on tour with her. So while he's on tour, he's paying Justin's bills. That's nuts. That tour ends. Lamar is jobless. Justin gets a gig on Guiding Light. Justin was an actor on Guiding Light for like two years. So he's paying Lamar's bills. And then their other friend, Steven, he ended up, there was a, there was a Pepsi commercial around that time. And there's a Pepsi and a Coke truck pull up to a stoplight uh-huh. and the Coke truck. He like winds his window down, turns his radio up Well, the Pepsi truck, like the doors on the side yeah, roll yeah, up yeah. and it's all speakers, and the truck starts hopping. Well, Steven, he was just one of the actors on the sidewalk and they were like, Hey, just give us some kind of reaction to the truck. And he just went. <laughs> they ended up making him a central character in that commercial. Dude made like 40 grand. No shit. Just for that. So he was paying their bills because he got that gig. And it, that's how the whole thing that's worked. Crazy. Everybody says they were all just taking care of each other. Yeah. You, you think that it's glamorous. Steven ended up getting like a real gig. He was on SBU or like one of those investigative shows. That's wild. Yeah, you think that it's glamorous, but it's not. It's just hoping for the best all the way through. And if you can find a couple of people that can support you and support them, like that's that's crazy. Cause it, it is such a like a, a hard gig economy with that stuff. You know, if you you can be easily inside of a job and, and working and then next thing you know you're not and you're not able to find anything else. So that's that's rough, man. You gotta love your friends, right? Oh my gosh. It was so it's it's great now to look back at it and have those memories. Yeah. But in in the moment, it was it was I mean, there was fun moments each day. But in general, my time there was not Yeah. It was not good for me. That's gotta be a lot of stress. There wasn't a lot of food. There was days where the three of us would just go, we'd each get a fifth of Jack Daniels, and that was that was pretty much the, the calorie intake for the day. Well, if you uh, if you sleep and just uh, drink and then drink and then sleep, that's not a bad way to live for a couple of days, right? Yeah. 
but you do, you're not very productive. You don't get much done. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's funny. All right. So we come back home. Um, you start the beans pretty much right after that when you come back home. Um, so that at that point when I came back home, that's when I ended up in uh, the original band with my cousin. Right. Okay. Then got into the cover thing with Bad Horse. Fast forward to July of '07 is when I started the Beans. Wait. So when when were you on? So you said 2003 you were on TRL. Yeah. So how old were you then? Mm, Twenty two. Okay. All right, because I almost thought that you were like 16 for a second. And I was like, that's just wild. That That is not safe. Oh. Like, who let you do that? that <laughs> don't do that. All right, so you come back, you, you do the beans, and now now we're doing, we're making more money than what you wanted to be as a teacher, and which is always wild to me because that's, that's kind of how I am. I wanted to be a teacher for a long time, and I was working full-time and going to school full-time for Pepsi. Um, and it's, it's such a hard thing to do to be able to sustain yourself all the way through it. And then you look at the amount of money that you're making just working and you're like, teachers make less than I do. Why, what am I doing with my life? I'm just going to go figure it out from here. And now I make more than most of them and I still don't have a college degree. So that works out pretty well. Which is such a, such a ridiculous thing. Oh yeah. Especially with everything that's going on right now. Yeah. Teachers are the most underappreciated and underpaid profession. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely insane. The fact that A, this is a position that really like forms your future as a country, first of all. And then you go to an individual level. This is like the most the most influential person on your child. This could be the most influential and you're just looking at them, yelling at them the entire time, possibly, because they're just not doing what you think needs to be done at a public school, right? Mm. And then on top of that, they're getting paid pennies on the dollar compared to the amount of work that they have to do. And then you throw in all the other nonsense that's going on. You know, you have what's happening now, and then you have the the real threat or real danger that, that happens in, in some of these schools. I, I saw March was the first time that we haven't had a school shooting in years. Oh, wow. And that was because the schools were closed. Like when, <laughs> when you think about that, that's, that's such a, like a big thing all the way through. And yeah, people just don't respect them enough. So then there's, there's the really good teachers that are out there, which are even more valuable because they realize how underpaid they are. Yeah. Yet, they're still going and being the best teacher that they can be and are making huge changes in the future. Like those people are phenomenal. And then on the other hand, you have other teachers where it's like, well, you get what you pay for. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Thankfully, I never had one of those, which makes me like feel pretty good. But I, I can imagine that, like, especially nowadays where you see someone that just learns how to code in six weeks and now they get a $150,000 salary or whatever. Yeah. That's got to be some of the most disheartening things in there. And you just got to have a passion for it, right? Like you, that you got to like what you're going to be doing because it's going to suck probably pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I figured out like probably three quarters of the way through that I really, I wanted to be a teacher, but I, I really wanted to be a coach. Okay. A football coach. And I just, thought all right well i'll be a teacher i mean that's that's the easiest way into that but 
there's a huge difference in being a teacher and being a coach. And I figured out I really didn't want to be a teacher. Yeah. Had it all just fell in line, I would have gone ahead and done my student teaching and finished it all out. But I wouldn't have been happy as a teacher. I definitely, had I started teaching at all, it wouldn't have lasted long. Yeah, because then you you get that spark of kind of creative freedom too to really pursue music as a legit career as well. You get that taste where you're at in New York, yeah, kind of living that artist life for the most part. Obviously, it's not super great. It's not glamorous. It's not what people think, but it is something where you are actually pursuing it and doing it, which I I think is cool. Uh, and then you get back to the the realization of I have to kind of do what my normal thing is and this normal thing kind of sucks. <laughs> yeah. All right. So with the with the beans, you started off drumming with them? Yeah. So it was I was on drums. Rich Guthrie was playing lead guitar. Alan Espinosa was singing. Jim Epp was our original bass player and George Wozniak was the original rhythm guitar player. Like six months into it, George ended up moving to Nashville. Okay. At which point Jim switched from bass to guitar, and then Mo came in to start playing bass. Once Mo joined in May of 08, Mo, Mo and Rich and I, the three of us were together from that point until New Year's Eve going into 2016. That was, right, that right, was Rich's right. last gig. Wow. Okay. So with you doing the, the cover bands, were you also trying to write your original music too? Because you've gone through that in, in spurts as far as I know as well, right? Yeah, I didn't start writing. I wrote a little bit when I was in college and the, the band that I was in then. And uh, it all just kind of set from that point, you know, 2002, 2003 until 2012. Okay. And I was actually down here in this same room on a Tuesday night and wrote this, wrote a song and then started playing it, started writing more songs started playing those the beans we were doing our thing and rich and i were playing acoustic gigs pretty much every thursday mm-hmm. and then uh so it'd be rich and i thursday the beans friday saturday and then sundays here and there and then probably in 2015 then i started mixing in solo gigs okay so then i i'd be solo wednesday rich and i thursday Beans Friday, Saturday, Sunday would be whatever. Sure. Any combo of that. Then Rich left at the end of 2015. Um, we got Brad McLean came in, started playing guitar. And then by, by that point, Rich and I were doing acoustic stuff, but I had also kind of built my own following. Mm-hmm. Like when Rich and I played acoustic, it was very much like, Beans songs acoustically with maybe other songs the Beans didn't do, but could easily be on in the same realm. Right. Yeah, because a little bit softer tunes. Yeah. And then when I started doing my own gigs, it was I've always been country music fan. My my grandfather played, my dad played, my mom sang. So I had like all these other tunes that I loved that I wanted to play that didn't fit. Sure. I couldn't play them with the Beans. They didn't fit with Rich and I. So I started playing solo gigs to do that. And then started mixing my own songs in on those nights. And just had it all going for a little while. Even since the Beans are done, I still continue the solo gigs. And that's that's doing its thing. And 
keep on writing songs. Well, if you look at it too, from what you're talking about, you almost had basically Wednesday through Sundays, you were playing music pretty much every day out. Yeah. So if you look at it, that's almost five days a week. And those are what, four hour gigs at least? Yeah. Yeah. So when people think about like a working musician, they think just touring and maybe playing some shows and kind of like the the nice side of things, not the fact that you're working still like 40 hours a week on top of rehearsals, on top of practices, on top of trying to figure out how to actually market yourself and get your name. When you guys started, I don't think the cover band circuit was as prevalent as it is kind of now where you there's so many different ones that are out. Uh, I feel like you kind of differentiated yourselves pretty quickly as kind of a, a younger, more contemporary act that drove people that were more your age and our age a little bit to the bars to where we're actually seeing, hey, this is what we want to see. Right. You know, that. so I, I like that. And then was that a conscious decision for you because of what, kind of happened with the the bat was a bad horse yeah it it absolutely was and it was i mean it was in an age thing completely yeah bad horse was i didn't know i didn't even get it at the time like looking at it now and thinking about that set list that we played lenny and chris were both great guitar players chris was a great singer i mean to be able to sing that stuff all night especially in boston like he could dude yeah. he could sing yeah. more than a feeling he and and hit it so i mean huge props to them and i didn't even respect it at the time because you know i wanted to play fallout boy <laughs> right so but there was <laughs> you know having a respect for what they could do versus like what people wanted was a big difference yeah and so that was my whole thing was of course i wanted to play what was what i liked and what was relevant to me at the time, but whatever was the biggest hit on the radio, we were going to be the first ones to do it. And there was times I would, I would hunt stuff down. I would hear it and we'd learn it a month or more before it blew up. Really? And and that was the plan. Like I wasn't going to let anybody else beat us to a song. <laughs> so at that point, you're doing your own little A&R, right? Yeah. So you're you're trying to kind of figure out what the the next hit is. Was there anything specific that you were looking for? Um, I don't. I think I really just lucked out a lot. Okay. <laughs> I remember I heard the first time I heard "Animal" by Neon Trees. Mm-hmm. It wasn't on the radio yet. I don't remember how I heard it, but I'm like, "Dude, that song crushes!" Like we're doing it. And so then I had to like find it. Yeah. And send it to the guys, and they're like, "What the hell is this?" Like, dude, we're learning it. Like, it's this song is awesome. <laughs> like, if 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 it's not a hit, like, we'll just teach it to people. Yeah, yeah. And we probably played that song for a month where nobody cared, and then all of a sudden it hit the radio and blew up. We were like, oh yeah, this whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you you had it in your back pocket this entire time. Like, that's that's fantastic. That's I don't think something that anybody really thinks about when it comes to you know, trying to get a set list together for this stuff. Cause you're, you're looking at trying to get into the future of it too, while being as proactive as basically a reactionary crowd is as, as much as possible. Right. Yeah. And it, I mean, there was a period of time where it was a, it was as more bands got on the scene, like, especially now the way it is 
these record labels, they decide what song's going to be a hit. And, you know, they just shove some money behind it and get it played every five minutes. And people are forced to love it. Yeah. You know? So as soon as that happens, within a month of a song becoming a hit, every cover band does it. Whether they should be or not, every, right. every cover <laughs> band is going to put a version of it out there. Yeah, because some, some people can hit that stuff. Some people cannot. Yeah. I mean, there was definitely a period of time where that area, that Neon Trees, everything Maroon 5 did was a hit. Oh, yeah. Like, that whole Bruno was just coming out with the, the first album. Like, all that stuff, like, the scene around here was really popping up, not just with local bands, but Hotel, Port, all these bars. They're also bringing down other cover bands from Philly and Jersey. Baltimore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And which... I was I knew a lot of those guys, so I knew what they were doing. And really, for them, New York is the music hub. So as it spreads from New York, it's gonna hit Philly before it gets here. Sure, yeah. I wasn't even just competing with what was here because all of them were coming down here. I had to compete with them too, which even further I had to like try to be ahead of the game somewhat. Yeah. So it made a difference when a song was a hit and people could come see us and say yeah this song is awesome like oh yeah i heard i heard the beans do that two weeks ago <laughs> i mean it, it mattered to me at least that big yeah i think that that helped right like that that helped really establish you guys to be basically the de facto number one for a while at least right yeah i mean it was the the combination of the song list and then we started putting the mash some of the mashups were put together on purpose some of them once I started singing, there was just times where, like, they would just happen because I was bored. <laughs> like, I, was, I could only sing what I got so many times. So, yeah, yeah. You know, props to you, Bradley Knoll. Like, you wrote a hit, but there's just not much to the song. Can you imagine, like, Aerosmith, for example, who still plays shows here and there, or Metallica? Think about Metallica that's been playing the same stuff for decades upon decades upon decades. They have to be over their own stuff. Oh my god, yeah. I can't I can't even imagine. Like if you're over it as someone that that plays other people's music here and there, like can you imagine the actual writer of it just being like, why did I even write this? I don't even <laughs> want this in my life. This is all a mistake. <laughs> yeah. And then you have to wonder, like, well, before the song became popular, how long did they actually write it? Oh yeah, like Zach Brown wrote Chicken Fried in two thousand four. Yeah, it nobody knew Chicken Fried till two thousand nine. That's uh, he's he's still out there. You got to <laughs> sing it every night. <laughs> yeah, that that puts it a little bit different perspective too. Yeah, you don't think about that stuff. It's you yeah. just like uh, imagine if James Hetfield wrote Master of Puppets in nineteen eighty. Yeah, and and didn't even start playing it out till eighty eight. <laughs> Oof. And you know some of those songs were already four or five years old before that. Right. Because you don't just write a record in a year. You know, you don't just, like, like what you've kind of experienced, you started writing your own stuff in 2012. You know, it, that doesn't automatically just be like, okay, I'm going to write 12 songs and now I'm, I'm good. I can put out a record. Oh, yeah. So I, I wrote that song in 2012. It didn't end up on a record until 2018. Wow. That's funny. When did you make the transition from drumming to fronting the band? Uh, June of 2010. Okay. Alan was having some issues here and there. None of us really knew what exactly the issue was. We were all 
all friends, but we definitely weren't as close. He was always kind of the outside the box. Mo and I are cousins. Mo's like a little brother. So he and I were yeah super tight always. Rich was very close with us. Jim at the time, like Jim was the first one to leave the band for family reasons. Okay. Rich and I, we really lucked out, like, especially my wife has been phenomenal through the whole thing. Right. I didn't even realize it for the longest time. I looked at it like, well, I was a musician when we got together. Like she knew I was a musician. Like she she shouldn't be mad. And I'm making money. <laughs> she shouldn't be mad. Never looking at it like, oh well, now we have three kids and she's pretty much been home with all three kids more than I've been home. Yeah, and your date nights are Tuesdays. Yeah. Who wants to go out on a Tuesday? So Jim when Jim left the band, that kind of I w I won't say it like put things in a different perspective. But Mo and Rich and I were really close and Alan was kind of outside the box and uh it just got to a point the the final straw mm-hmm. we're playing at Gilligan's one night and at the end of the first set, I think I had eight text messages from people that were there, some of which were like, What's wrong with him? Is he gonna make it through the night? Uh oh. A couple people left because it was it was so bad. They left. Really? And it, he he ended up like I know he left the state for a while. He came back. I think he left again. I he might be back around now. I know like everything's going great for him now. But it was it was just a rough time, a r- rough little patch. Yeah, yeah. Which he got through and everything is much better for him now. We've seen him a few times since then, like all is well. Halloween 2017, we had a, a 10-year reunion show at Hotel Charles for Halloween. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I invited everybody out. So he got back up and I think he sang like five or six songs with us that night. Very cool. I like that. But at that point when uh, it was time, not not just for us as a band to continue, but it was definitely as much as he was pissed about it. Obviously, it was necessary for him to get out of the band. Sure. Get away from here and get away from from everything that was causing his issues. Gotcha. Okay. Who who started drumming for you then? Uh, oddly enough, like the week before that Gilligan show, we were playing at Hula's. That that brings you back. Yeah. Yeah, in California, and Mike Damron walked in, <laughs> and Mo and I had known Damron for forever, from like when we were doing right original bands. So we were talking on a set break. I'm like, dude, you want to get up and jam a couple songs? And so I think he came up and played Bulls on Parade or Killing in the Name of. That's a good way to stamp your mark right there, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so we were talking afterwards, and he was like, man, that was a blast. It's like, I didn't realize you guys being a cover band, I didn't realize you'd bring all these people here. Holas for a little while used to jam. Yeah, yeah. It was like the new the new spot, so everybody was flooding it. And we had a few nights there. It was like four or 500 people just jammed in that little joint. Yeah, that sounds about right. So, yeah, the following week, we... Alan had that show at Gilligan's and so I hit Damron up immediately. I'm like, um, so we got to make a move, man. You really interested? Because <laughs> if you're interested, we got some work to do. That's that's fantastic. And two weeks later, we played our, our first gig with that lineup. And it was really cool when he was in the band because he's sang also. Right, yeah. So I was, I was technically, I was the lead singer a majority of the time. But he would still come out. We'd swap two or three songs each set. 
he'd come out and sing. I'd play drums. Oh, that works out pretty well. That way, yeah, it brings you back to your TRL days, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was a, <laughs> that was like the best of both worlds for both of us. Yeah. Because then you're able to kind of get out in the front too and flex a different muscle as well, I would assume. Yeah. And it's like just a combination of, okay, yeah, being out front, singing is cool, but I really love playing the drums. So now I get to go play drums. And for him, you know, he's like, yeah, man, playing the drums is cool, but I feel like singing a song. Oh, well, <laughs> now I get to go sing a song too. That's, that's a really good combination. I like that. You started writing some originals in, in 2012. Were you still writing while the, the beans were still going too? Oh, yeah. I didn't really go all in on writing in 2012. It just kind of happened. Okay. As I started playing more solo gigs, like different, I can't, the only thing I can write is country song for whatever reason. Like I, it, it doesn't make <laughs> any sense because I can sit down here for days and listen to Green Day and Newfound and Mest and all of that. I can't, I can't write one of those songs. I don't understand. <laughs> you just, I guess you're just not mad or sad enough. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> right. I don't know. I just, uh, the more I played solo gigs and the more I played the, all the country songs, like the more I would get ideas for this and that. So they would come out randomly. And then probably like 2015 or 16, by that point, the Beans were totally on cruise control at that point. Right. So Damron was in the band from June of 2010 until New Year's Eve 2012. At that point, he had decided he wanted to start another project with his brother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They started the Piranhas. Mike really, he wanted to sing and he really wanted to play guitar. Being a lead guitar player, had that had become like his his main interest. Sure. So at that point, we got Kenny Smith to come in. Kenny started playing drums. So it was Mo, Rich, Kenny, and I from 12 to 15. That period is when when things really just locked in the, the tightest. Okay. You know, we kind of, we built all this we built the the party and the the friends and all that we kind of built the the area that we were going to play in and built our name in all these different clubs from 7 to 12 and built the song list and we had all that building time and it was continually getting better the whole time right right and then 12 to 15 it really just locked in there so then when rich left and brad joined i knew at that point when rich told us that he was leaving there was only two guys in mind. Either one of them was going to take Rich's spot or it was done. Okay. And Brad Brad was one. Brad ended up jumping in and that was like a, a whole new spark because we didn't necessarily change the song list, but just his style yeah, kind of refreshed all of the songs for us. So now all of a sudden it wasn't, we're playing the same song, but it didn't feel like we were playing the same song. <laughs> right, yeah, because it's a different, it's just that different kind of accent i guess on air or just a, a different kind of feeling to it where someone could be just slightly more aggressive or maybe they're just noodling a little bit more or what, whatever just a nice big bright pop totally. you know that that makes all the difference and brad is a noodler and rich they're they're a polar opposite guitar players rich is very much whatever song we're going to learn he's going to sit down he's going to learn every note the way it's played he's going to crush it every time there's no question Brad was in the band for three years, and I guarantee, like, there's songs that we played that Brad has never sat down and listened to. That's very impressive. Yeah. So he's a phenomenal guitar player, but 
because of their styles, they're completely different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it. I'm totally cool with winging anything. Mo and Kenny were not, Mo had gotten so used to Rich from 2008 to 15, like seven years of Rich being right on time. Every yeah, yeah. Mo had become the same way, and and Kenny even from 12 to 15, he and Mo had gotten so tight as a rhythm section. They did not like breads. Noodling. Freedom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it took it was definitely like a good six or eight months before Kenny mainly relaxed and kind of sat back in the groove and let Brad do his thing. <laughs> but it, it opened it opened so many things whereas uh Brad and I had a lot of the same soundtrack growing up, I guess. Okay. We randomly started doing Keep Your Hands to Yourself. Like we never we never decided Georgia Satellites. Yeah, I yeah. got a little in my, we never decided we were gonna learn that song. You just did it. We were at a gig somewhere, and uh, I just started the whamp, 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 whamp. And Brad just kind of looked and like, all right. And I'm like, all right. Well, Coach Mo threw it, <laughs> and, <What>? <laughs> and, we, <laughs> and we just did it. Oh, that's gotta feel good. <laughs> that's gotta feel great. And Brad and I loved it. Uh, Mo and Kenny were not <laughs> not into happy it. about it, but at that point, like. Once I start singing, it's it's game you know, on. Yeah, they gotta get they gotta get on the train. That's a, <laughs> but because of that, I mean, we we started that be just that became a thing, and that keep your hands to yourself. It didn't just become a song in the set. It grew into its own like ten minute medley of things. That's fantastic. Yeah, just because it's because they fell into it. That's what that's where I really lucked out the most is. Like those guys, they uh, they it got to where they just trusted me. Right. If I told them like, "Hey, learn this song." Yeah, yeah, you gotta, you gotta like that. What do you think of when it comes to the kind of the future for you? Because you you released something in 2018 of your own stuff, right? Yeah, that was a uh, that was a six song EP in 18. Okay. And then just two singles in 19. Gotcha. Okay. And then, so are you thinking? of doing more writing and releasing records? Is it kind of still, you know, this is this is your moneymaker. You're still out there doing your own shows, enjoying yourself, because at this point, why not, right? I guess I honestly don't really have a plan at this point. <laughs> <laughs> the Beans was, the Beans, it was so great for so long. Yeah. and uh, But it, it got to a point where that we were going to build anymore or or progress any further yeah you hit kind of a plateau right and and we were gonna have to put more time more money into it you know you gotta you gotta put money into the production of the show to make it better and i just wasn't in a place where i wanted to do that i understood that's what it needed and i i had 15 different ideas of ways to do it like what it what it could be but the time became a big thing realizing that and my kids are 19 14 and 9 now my son didn't know what life was like without me having all that right like he was he was born in 2010 we we're in 2010 we we're already playing 150 shows a year yeah that's that's got to be really rough you know got to where i would leave for a gig and they didn't care like <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> oh yeah, it is. It is Thursday. We'll see you Sunday, Dad. Oh no! Oh. 
Yeah, that can't feel good. And then the music, like I said, the whole thing was built on playing current music. Yeah. And current music just went to shit. None of that was any fun. So then all we were doing was like pulling out 90 songs or early 2000 songs or, you know, whatever song. Yeah, you're going backwards, not staying contemporary just to try to keep it going, right? And then, you know, there's now, like the 90s are huge right now. Everybody wants to hear 90s. Cool. But now there's also legitimate 90s only cover bands. There's specific Green Day bands. Yeah. It's ridiculous. And which is, which is weird. Like, I think Billy Joe has become way too political and it's super annoying now. But I would not want to attempt to impersonate Billy Joe <laughs> at any. I mean, that, that dude is, he's one of the best frontmen. Ever. Yeah, and it's a really unique voice, too, that he's been able to kind of get away with and polish throughout the decades that he's been playing. Yeah, I think I'm so impressed by the fact that at how well he fronts the band as a front man while always playing guitar. Like It's a whole different element. Steven Tyler's out there running around swinging his scarves and his microphone <laughs> around versus like Billy Joe always has this you know, guitar attached to them. Well, and the other the other piece about that too is making a three-piece sound big, right? Making sure that you're filling up all the space when you're playing arenas at this point. You know, you're still yeah. basically a three-piece. Are you writing for that? Are you writing with that in mind? Because that's that's a whole lot of space that you got to fill up. So let's, um, let's kind of wrap up with this. So... You don't really have a goal of mine, which is cool. We're doing everything um, just with the music. But one point that you just brought up is is your family, right? So how were you able to balance that stuff out? And is that something that you're more conscious of now to try and make sure that you're there for them? Oh, absolutely. Was my, yeah, my, my family was the number one reason that I decided it was time to shut the beans down. Gotcha. Even like all those other things, the the songs. The production, like that, all played a part. But at the end of the day, it was just realizing all the time that I missed. Like it wasn't for nothing. Yeah. But it was also it was it was time I wasn't gonna get back. My oldest is nineteen, so she's in college herself. Then my fourteen-year-old, she plays piano and sings. Obviously, well, you've seen that, and so I really want to be able to put more time into that and to help her get further along than I did and much sooner. Sure. Okay. Which is also why I'm trying to figure out this whole recording thing. <laughs> like production and sound has never been something I was interested in. The first the first three Beans gigs, our guitar player George, he had a whole PA. He's like, yeah, dude, I'll just I'll run it. And then, you know, we start playing. He's like running out front, listening to this, like trying to mix from the stage. Like, this is insane. Yeah. yeah. Like no, I'm gonna. I'm paying somebody to do that. Right, right. It's so much work. It's so much work. And you, you literally, you cannot do yourself justice by trying to do it like that. No. So we hired a guy. Then uh, June of 2008, our sound guy couldn't make a gig that we had lined up. So he contacted another sound guy, Mike Kirkpatrick, to fill in this gig. And we played that gig. We all like instantly. Like Mike was our boy. Yeah. Mike became our permanent sound guy from 08 till 16. It's a, a very unsung profession, I feel like, because if if everything sounds good, you don't think that they're doing anything. 
because you don't think about it, right? As an audience member, you're just like, oh yeah, this is what it's supposed to sound like. But if it sounds yeah. bad, it's definitely sounding bad. Like you can tell when it's off. Also, nobody nobody ever realizes that they have to be there two, three hours before us. Right. And people see, you know, there's been venues where like, oh, well, the band starts at nine. Well, Mike rolls in at seven and they don't want to move stuff out of his way so he can set up. It's like, that's, uh, that's well, if he, if he doesn't start at seven, we're not starting at nine. Yeah. Yeah. That throws the whole night out. Yeah. And then when we finish at one, he'll be here till three. Yeah. So I did my own shows. I did original music shows uh, from about 06, 07 to right around, I think 2014 was my last original show that I did. And I lost hearing. I have tinnitus in my right ear. So what I did was put on all the shows and I worked with a sound guy that we basically partnered with, right? And sound is is important to me. I want to make sure that it sounds good because if it doesn't, then your whole show is is kaputz. You can use amps, but that's not going to fucking work. But I would be in the middle, the center of the, the room and then I would turn sideways to make sure that I could hear everything going into my left ear to make sure that everything's like balanced. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it, was, it was a wild time. And I don't do it anymore because I, I would like my, my uh, left ear to kind of last a little bit longer than my right ear did. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that, the idea of you playing and trying to run your own sound is just, it's maddening. And then realizing that all of that takes money too to like pay yep. someone that does quality stuff that has quality gear is also a completely a different different set of uh, skills that you'd have to have. There's no question that Mike Kirkpatrick was was a huge publicly unappreciated piece of us in that whole time period like growing. Like I mean of course, you know, the venues that we played on a regular basis like they all got to know him and right. They understand how important he was, but in general, it was just our four faces, you know, on a on a show flyer, even yeah. though he was he was there with us every time. But you know, Mike, he, he's older. He's a decade older than than me. He also lived on the Eastern Shore. What? Yeah. So he was driving, especially in the summer, man. Some of these gigs, like we play Gilligan's in the summer, it'd be a three hour drive. Yeah. For him, just to get there, you know, he's loading up. We play Gilligan's nine thirty to one thirty, and then he's pulling out of there. Me and Mo. A lot of times, Mo and I would stick around and help him just get, help him get out of there as soon as possible. He was still getting home, you know, between five and six a.m. Yeah, I hope that uh, he was making all the money in the band. <laughs> <laughs> I try to I try to treat him right. I mean, uh, yeah, that that's good. That's good because that's oh man, that that's rough. All right. <laughs> so we we talked a little bit about the the family in there, which I, I think is important. Balancing that stuff out and and realizing kind of what's important throughout everything, right? Yeah, my wife has been phenomenal. I mean, she's probably tired of me by now. Now I've been home. Now I've been home so much. <laughs> she's like, well, it's it's funny because if you talk to like Navy spouses, right? So they they always kind of or just military spouses in general, right? Because you always go out, right? You get ship duty, you get whatever. It's funny because sometimes you're like, oh, I really miss this person. I wish they were home. No, I need you to leave. You've been here for a week. Go go back on travel. I don't need you in my life anymore. We can be friends over the phone. It's fine. We can it's okay. Just that's that's so funny. Cause yeah, I I've known plenty of those that it I can't imagine what she's going through now with with you being there. I try to I mean, during that whole time, even I try to make it a point 
as much as possible, to do as much as possible when I was home. Now, when my my son was born, I was definitely my son was born in June of 2010. At that point in time, I was a hundred percent in on whatever was beneficial for the beans. Yeah, loved it. Just wanted it to be the biggest thing ever. My my son was born on a Friday night, and I played a gig Saturday night. I mean, I they were it was they were important to me too, and I was just looking at the beans as. I, you know, I just wanted it to be this this big thing that was gonna, yeah, you know, just support us for, you know, however long. But after a while, like, I still wanted all of that, but I tried to make it more of a point to when I was here, one hundred percent be here. I mean, there was there were some times where at least twice we were played in Hagerstown or somewhere two three hours away, and by the time we left the gig. My son had started playing flag football. So I drove home, pulled in the driveway. They got in the van and we drove to his game. Wow. But that was important too. Yeah. Yeah. And look, I mean, luckily for me, I've been able to operate on whatever amount of sleep I get. Or, yeah, or the lack thereof, right? If it's, you know, if you get eight, hell yeah. If you got two, well. Got to keep it going. What What do you think you've learned most when it comes to you and and out of music? Oh my gosh, I don't even know that I could just pick a thing. I learned so much from it all. Learning how important it is to build something like that, like to to have the initial thought and the willingness to put all the time in being lucky enough to find all the other pieces that you need that have the same thought process. You know, I was, I was the only one in the band with three kids, but Rich had two kids. Rich had been married longer than I had been married. He was also willing to put in the time to, to build it, make it happen. Rich is also rich. He's been a middle school teacher forever. So he had a full-time job. I was lucky that, my full-time job, I have a day job. I work at Andrews Air Force Base as a project manager for a construction company. Mm-hmm. And so even through all of that, like they were super cool about, you know, days I had to take off or days I had to leave early. They We play secrets on a Tuesday night. I'd come in the next day at whatever time. <laughs> yeah. All of those pieces just fell into place when some was lucky. And on top of that, like it's, it's cool to be able to look back now at all the 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 friends that I have now that came from that and then for my kids to be able to understand it's going to take some kind of sacrifice like if there's something that you yeah. want you don't just you don't just get it. yeah you got to work for it right yeah and my, i mean now my 14 year old with her getting into it like she's got to understand like nobody's just going to walk in the door and hand you 5 million bucks and <laughs> like if you if you Taylor Swift's career, now you got to get on that TikTok, man. You got to get on that TikTok. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What do you think keeps you motivated the most to keep going? Well, there's no, there's no question that just music in general is that's just that's just my thing for sure. After the Beans final show, I was actually looking forward to not having to play music, but I did not play music 
it, we ended and I was still in the house, like playing whatever tunes. I didn't cancel all my acoustic gigs. Like I cut them back, but I was still having a blast at them. Like, it, I mean, it's just, the music just doesn't stop. And I think it's just been in me from the very first minute that I was conceived, I guess. I mean, both <laughs> my parents are musicians and it just runs in the family. So it's not going to change. Yeah. So I think the only thing that may change would just be, I kind of go through periods where I'll, I'll go through a period where all I want to listen to is Waylon Jennings and I'll write songs like Waylon write songs. And then right now here this, this past week has just been nothing but the pop punk stuff. Nice. Like 99 till 05 or so. Yeah. But, uh, so I haven't been able to write on it. You got to get that teen angst back, man. That, that's what you got to get. Well, now, like now my nine-year-old, now he's starting to play drums. We have three kits set up right now. One is mic'd up. I'm trying to figure out how to record <laughs> that. And, and he wants to be a YouTube star. So he wants to videotape or he wants to video every single right, thing we right. do in the world. Yeah, and that makes you have to learn so much because now you're going to have to learn how to... Because, I mean, they look up to you. They're like, you played music for like your whole life. What have you been doing? Yeah. <laughs> Show me how to actually record it. And you're like, I don't... I just played it. I don't know how to do any of this. Yeah. I pay, I pay somebody <laughs> to do that, buddy. <laughs> well, look, man, uh, I've kept you a while. Um, I think that I could probably talk to you for another like two or three hours. So I, I really appear, uh, appreciate this. We might have to do this again if you're up for it. This was fantastic. Yeah, dude. Yeah. Maybe next time we won't be in the weirdest situation our country's ever been in. And uh, <laughs> we could be in the same room. Yeah, that would be great.